0: i'm charlie rossiter and this is poetry spoken here on this podcast we continue our special extended interview with jonathan chaves a major translator of classical chinese poetry into english for many years professor of chinese language and literature at george washington university in washington dc In part one, we talked about issues of translation, and Jonathan read a couple of his translations. We're going to continue with that for this podcast, exploring more issues and poetic items of interest. Then, I'll be talking about a poet with some attitude. Morgan Parker, out in California right now, whose latest book is There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyoncé. That's from... Tin House Books, just published in
1: 2017. What we talk about is poetry. Right. That's what you do on this program, right? Yeah,
0: you bet. (laughs) And chrysanthemums, Dal Chen's favorite flowers, right?
1: Exactly. As soon as you read about them, he comes to mind. The same is true of paintings of chrysanthemums. That you might do a painting of chrysanthemums and write the words Dongli, eastern hedge, mm. because famous line by Tao Yuanming, Tao Qian, is Tai ju li xia. I pluck chrysanthemums beneath the eastern hedge. Everybody knows that line. So just put eastern hedge. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's another one, which again is called simply... Gee, sure, things happening now. Now, this is one of those days when things were not going that great, when poetry itself and wine were not doing the trick. I drink a bit but can't get drunk. Lonely sadness, what is there to do? Evening mists half mingle with the clouds, Spring snow is mixing with the rain. The flowers are wet, few people pass that way. The sky is cold, many the cries of geese. I lean on the railing, feelings limitless, yearning for the past, singing in aimless grief. I hate when that happens. Yeah, right. Now here's one uh, poem, one last poem of his, called A Friend Who Lives in the Woods. And Wang Jun did know some of the officials who were in power and had poetic interchanges with them, but a great many of his friends were men like himself who really had turned their back on the world of competition, the world of officialdom, Uh, and this is another one. So in this case, he is gaining further inspiration for his own lifestyle from this man's, a friend who lives in the woods. Flowers, rocks, and your hut in the woods. None would be chosen by vulgar men. You spread sand to soften the pathways, use bamboo to form hedge like rows. Guests stay over to share family dinners. You teach your sons to recite from ancient books. You always say the way to lead one's life is simple. Be like woodcutters and fishermen.
0: Definitely uh, turning his back on officialdom. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that the, uh, these poems come from a little book I did on Wong and this was the first on him in any language in modern times, aside from his own collected poetry, of course, back in his lifetime. Uh, the first book on him in any language, Chinese included, and the book is called Westcliff Poems. The poetry of Wong Duen Wow, came All out right. just a few years ago.
0: Oh, here's here's a technical question for a translator. Um, sure. Where do you stand on the issue of of how tight you should be to the original, or being mostly or being concerned about having a good poem in English. Is that yeah. an issue? I mean, that, I think that's how you think about it.
1: Yeah. So that is, of course, the question of questions. And um, I have actually always placed great emphasis on both. Um and and I have found myself caught betwixt and between a certain extremes. Uh, for example, at one end of the spectrum would be somebody who just takes, is just listens to the original, gets some, or reads the original, and gets some kind of inspiration from it, and then writes a poem of their own, which is an imitation,
0: mm-hmm. not
1: even a paraphrase. Um, using the word imitation in the sense that Robert Lowell used it for some of his uh, quote-unquote translations, or even uh, Judith Gautier, who was the first serious uh, writer of imitations of Chinese poetry in Europe in France in the 1860s with her book Le Livre de Jade, The Book of Jade, um, where she has poems that are supposedly by Li Du Fu, mm-hmm. and yet scholars cannot even find the originals that they're supposed to represent. <laughs> At the other end of the spectrum, you have somebody like Bernard Kahlgren, who was the great Swedish sinologist. And uh, he did the most scholarly complete translation that we have of the Book of Songs, the Shijing and he translated the whole thing into English. The English is not only not poetic, it's terrible, but it's accurate. Yeah, That's the other, extreme. and how do you get the middle ground? Arthur Whaley, in his version of the Book of Songs, which dates from the 1930s, I think was very successful. He is scholarly, he is dependable as to meaning. He writes poems that I think stand alone as English poems. And that has been my goal. Now, some years ago, I decided to tackle one particular aspect of this problem, and that's the question of rhyme. All of these poems in the original Chinese rhyme. Um, trans- a serious translator, starting with Whaley, who's really the first uh, translator to be scholarly and artistic all at once decided not to rhyme for obvious yeah. reasons two obvious reasons number one it's so difficult it's almost impossible and number two rhyme is going out of fashion when Whaley first published in the nineteen nineteen 19 teens into the 20s uh, modernism is starting to come out you're you're starting to get Ezra Pound TS Eliot Um, Even even surrealism is coming, uh, you know, with Andre Breton and -hmm. all of them. And rhyme is starting to be seen as old-fashioned. You can't write in rhyme. So those were two very good reasons for avoiding rhyme. But in uh, some years ago, uh, and under the influence, I admit, of the neo-formalist movement in poem, in poetry, which has captured my attention, I, had, I believe that some very good work has been done of that sort. I started becoming interested in writing um, metrical and rhyming poetry in English myself, sonnets, for example. And I've even had a few of them published here and there. And I decided, do I think that I could take Chinese poet, again, someone not known, and I took the Tang poet Zhang Ji uh, who uh, is one of the most important Chinese poets that had never been translated at all, and do 300 poems of his. Uh, I didn't aim for that number, that's what I ended up with. Mm -hmm. Doing rhymes, half rhymes, sometimes allowing an assonance and following the, uh, tracking rather, the rhyme schemes of the original. If the original is X Mm -hmm. rhyme, X rhyme, X rhyme, which is the usual, pattern in Chinese poetry, the even-numbered lines rhyme, then that's what I'm going to do and see if I could work it out. So I did it, and I got the book published under the name Cloud Gate Song. And its publication was greeted with a resounding silence. Um, uh, the, The Chinese poetry scholars have no interest in translation. And if you put any energy into translation at all, you know, they're not going to pay attention to it that much. And the poetry people tend to be divided between those who support neo formalism and those who are against it. I consider myself to be a rare example of someone who loves both of them when they're done right. Mm-hmm. I, I can enjoy both of them. Um, but so the book ended up falling between two stools, if you will. Uh, with nobody really being interested in it. And, and and if you were to ask me, do I think it was successful? I have mixed feelings about it myself. There are certain poems in there where I think it works. There are others where I think it it doesn't really work. But I do believe now it's possible to do it. Nevertheless, for my next book after that, I went right back to my usual style, not rhyming. So uh, that's yeah. a, you know, that, that's yeah. pretty much what I have to say on that.
0: Yeah. I have that book. and Oh, my, you do? My,
1: yes, I do. I you mean book. you didn't burn your copy?
0: No, but I will I will confess I enjoy your other books more. As
1: uh, <laughs> book. uh, now, You know something? <laughs> Burton, let me just say this. Burton Watson, who is my teacher, my mentor, and a man whose work I love, and exercised a great influence on me. It's been nothing but supportive of me. He wrote a preface for one of my book. That book, he said, I this I don't like. I think you've taken a wrong turning. So we had to agree to disagree.
0: Well, my thought, which is here's, fine. My, here's my thought on it, which you would never want to do this much work, but wouldn't it be interesting if the book had on facing pages, rhyming and not rhyming versions?
1: Of the same poem?
0: The same poem. Yeah, all those rhyming poems that are not as enjoyable to read because we're not used to reading rhyming poems these days. But suppose a regular kind of translation that you would do was uh-huh. opposite, and it's the same poem. Wow, that's
1: an interesting thought. Let as let a, me put <laughs> let me put that in my pipe and smoke it for a while, okay?
0: Too much work. That's, I a, think.
1: that's a very interesting for, idea.
0: Uh, maybe for a little sampling of poems sometime, a chapbook or something.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I'm thinking about it
0: because <laughs> yeah anyway how about telling us a little bit about uh is it kan- the kanshi relating to the book the old Taoist uh codigen i think that book is fabulous and Columbia did a great job with reproducing the art uh, it's just a lovely uh, book i'm always telling people this is such a lovely book
1: i'm so <laughs> glad that you like that book Um, I have to tell you something about how that book got published, because it's it's an interesting story. The person who discovered Kodojin as a painter um, is Stephen Addis, who is an incredible guy. You and he would like each other very much. He is uh, a, a man whose career has spanned being a folk singer to becoming one of the few Westerners who was able to do saleable works of traditional Chinese and Japanese calligraphy himself, seal carving, and so oh, forth. And he also is a great art historian, and he discovered Kodogen, who was not that well known in Japan. He interviewed uh, Kodogen's sister, who's still alive in her 80s or 90s. and. Na- right now, a number of the best Japanese art dealers in the West are handling Kodogen paintings, all because of him. And wow. he got hold of a book of Kodogin's um, Chinese language poems, which he sent to me. And he said, here, what do you think of these? Maybe we could do an article. I started reading, them, like, my God, this guy's fantastic. And before I knew it, I had over 200 translations. Meanwhile, Steve had been translating his haiku poems Mm-hmm. Because Kodojin studied haiku with Masa Okashiki, the mm-hmm. man who coined the word haiku and is the father of modern Japanese haiku. And his haiku poems are great. Painting, great Chinese poems, great Japanese poems. I said, we've got a book. Let me go to Columbia University Press. And he said, okay, try it. So I went to the person who will remain nameless, um, who was in the, right position at that time at the press. And I said, um, you know, so-and-so, this book is absolutely incredible. So she takes the book and she passes it around to a bunch of outside readers and comes back to me, Jonathan, nobody ever heard of this guy. And I said, so-and-so, when Columbus saw the new land, He didn't say, oh, crap, no one ever heard of this place. I'm turning around and going home. (laughs) It's called discovery. It's called exploration. That's exactly the point. The guy is no one ever heard of him, and he's great. Duh. Okay, so (laughs) she's so reluctant. You know, I I Hmm. basically just browbeat her into publishing the book. And people love it with good reason, you know? Now kanji poetry is what I've been working on most recently, um, and the book that I'm working on now. In fact, I have Stephen Addis writing about this man as a calligrapher. I'm writing about him as a kanji poet, and Matthew Fraley, who is an outstanding young scholar of Japanese literature, who is a specialist in kanji. Now uh, he's at Brandeis University. His his work. I commend it to all your listeners. He's he's really uh, amazing. Um, We three are working a book on Yanagawa Sagan. Sagan, writing in the, uh, let's say 1840s into the 1850s is definitely one of the best Kanchi poets. I already have more than a hundred of his poems and I I love them. I think they're some of the best that I've done. Um, The, It is amazing that you have, and I actually cannot think of a real parallel to this, where you have poets writing in a language which is not their native language, producing poetry of this caliber, worthy of standing in some cases side by side with the masterpieces of the home country, China. That's how good some of them are. Uh, But no one has been looking at it the Chinese are not interested because they say "Oh, the Japanese can't really write Chinese poetry and the Japanese scholars say, ah, it's not really Japanese (laughs) literature because it's in Chinese. So, you know, so I come along, you know, just, I'm just like an ordinary American guy from Brooklyn. So I don't have a dog in in the race, so to speak. And I read them and I say, you know what? These are great. I love them. So I'm going to do them.
0: Yeah. I want to mention, uh, if it's not clear to you who are listening, this book, Old Taoist, uh, which is poetry of Kadojin, uh, being a Chinese, uh, Japanese poet who wrote Chinese poetry, the first, roughly first half of the book is his Japanese haiku, which Stephen Addis translated. And Jonathan, who we're talking to, did the back part with a lovely essay about him, and how he relates to uh, Chinese poetry, and then translated a bunch of Kodogen's poems. So it's in in the meanwhile, in the middle, on some very higher quality paper are some lovely reproductions of Kodogen's art, which is outstanding. There you go. Just want to get that in in case it's not clear.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. I'm I'm so delighted that that you that somebody of, of your uh, taste and caliber would love a book like that. One other point we should make is that Kodogen lived from 18 65 to 1944. Right. So he is, in fact, um a modern figure.
0: Yeah, he's he's not with the ancient guys. He's, yeah. he's more
1: he's well, showing um, that he's showing that you can bring that type of thing back and blow new life into it. It's it's almost but not quite like saying that you can turn the clock back. Um, Of course, G.K. Chesterton once pointed out that the clock turns itself back uh, once every 12 hours, which is true. (laughs)
0: Okay. Um, So the other thing we should certainly talk about, and and this will make uh, your publisher Floating World Editions happy, is we should say some specific things about the Cave of the Immortals. And this is a poetry where you're going back to your beginnings or something you've always done finding the poets that people don't know who are really good and bringing them out. It's Cause he wrote uh, roughly, oh, well, you got it right here. 1019 to 1079 is when he was writing when
1: he lived. Those are his actual dates. Yes.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and he was very well known as the Supreme master of bamboo painting
1: Correct, correct. This is an example of a man whose name is inscribed forever on Chinese cultural history as a great painter. He is the master of masters of the art of bamboo painting, that is, paintings in which you see nothing but sprigs of bamboo, usually done in shades of black um, and in calligraphic brush strokes, he invented um, the various incredibly innovative compositional effects. He didn't actually initiate this type of painting, but he's he is the supreme master of it. And what's more, there are only three um, authentic paintings by him in the world. Two of them are in the Palace Museum in Taiwan, and one of them is in the Shanghai Museum. But every painting of bamboo that you see by the later masters says something on it like in the manner of wen tung oh wow or even this is a copy of a painting by wen tung and that copy has long since been lost they 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 even go so far as these are great painters in their own right saying this is a copy of a man who is even greater, you know, than I aspire to be, um, but but because of that, his poetry was not well known. Now, the a very well known Sung Dynasty poet Su Shi or Su Dongpo, and Burton Watson has that great book, um, S- a, a- Sung, Su Dongpo, uh, a poet of the Sung Dynasty, which is still in print in a reprint edition, uh, was a cousin of Wen Tung and a great admirer of him, both as a painter and as a poet. Um, and he, in, in, in one of his poems, Sushir's, that he wrote for Wen-Tung, in Burton Watson's translation, he says, when Wen-Tung painted bamboo, he saw bamboo only, never people. Did I say he saw no people? He himself became bamboo, putting out fresh growth endlessly. Ooh. That's an artist. Yeah. So anyway, I just I start I came upon the one modern uh, anthology of his poetry that came out in his home province of Sichuan back in the nineteen eighties. I read a few of those poems. Again, great. I felt he was a soulmate of mine. And um, more recently, I decided I think the time has come to get back to Wen Tung. I often do that. I learn about somebody, and then I put them somewhere on the back shelves of my mind. And when the time is right, and it may be decades into the future, um, I will come to them You know, at when the moment is right. And I, I got hold of the complete um, poetry of Wen Tung, which was not an easy thing to do with the help of a Chinese colleague of mine uh, to whom I'm very grateful, and uh, sat down and started going through. And before I knew it, I definitely had a book of poems and also prose pieces. And the title is the title of one of the prose pieces, Cave of the Immortals, in which Wentung says that he knows a man who took a trip to a certain remote cave and it's way, way out in Sichuan somewhere. It's in the middle of nowhere, where there were rumors that these uh, Shenren, or immortals, who had concocted the elixir of immortality or had eaten herbs of immortality um, and had, um, that were living in this cave every so often and always at high noon, which is often the witching hour, not midnight in traditional societies, they would be seen coming out of the cave. They're about eight, nine, 10 feet tall, trailing wisps of mist behind them and walking about on the air for several miles of distance back and forth, and then eventually disappearing back into the cave. And this friend of his questioned the local villagers, who told him, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. They, uh, Those are our neighborhood immortals. Yeah. You know, they, they, they were almost blasé about it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's our neighborhood 7-Eleven. Oh, yeah, sure, the, the cave with the immortals. So the guy went there, and sure enough, he saw them and reported this to Wen Tung, who says, this happened on such and such a day of such and such a month of such and such a year, signed Wen Tung. No indication at all that this is fiction. So it's wow. it's presented as reportage. You know, you might yeah. read it in The Washington Post one day. So <laughs> I translate, I tra- <laughs> I translated that and uh, and took that as the name. Wow. And, and this is great because, you know, many of my students now are Chinese from China. And they, they never even heard of this guy. Or maybe they heard, oh, yeah, the bamboo painter. They had no idea he wrote poetry.
0: Oh, and great.
1: they are fascinated that a that a Westerner would come up with something like this. Oh,
0: yeah. Oh, well, here's, I want to ask you this, too. Uh, because when I, when I found out that you studied with Burton Watson, I thought, oh, well, that's pretty cool. And um, here's a question. Do you have any, uh, like, I don't know, like, Big principles or thing that old Burton used to always say about translation, like do this or that <laughs> or no. um,
1: Well, you know, I was at Columbia getting my MA and then PhD from 1965 to 1971, and thankfully for me, Burton Watson was teaching there at that time. Later on, he eventually moved to Japan, where he lived uh, for years and years and years until his recent death. And um, I, I had the great honor of studying with him. And now uh, Burton Watson's a very, very quiet, understated, humble man. Um, and when I realized, when I started working on my dissertation, which was on a Song Dynasty poet named Mei Chen from the 11th century, um, who had never been done before, I did my first translations, and I, I looked at them and I said, I have no idea if these are any good or not. So I took them to Burton Watson, and I left them with him, and he said, come back to see me next week at such and such a time. I went back and sat down, and I'm sitting there breathless, I mean, holding my breath, Yeah. and I said, well, what, what, what do you think? And he he says, oh, they're pretty good. Just keep on doing what you're doing. That was the totality of what he had to say on that occasion. I now (laughs) felt as if I had made it as a translator. That's the advice he gave me.
0: That was it. Keep doing what you're doing. Understated. he, he
1: He was content, I think, to allow his work to be to stand for what he represents. And he had sensed, I think, from my work, that I had taken in what he had and what Whaley had, you know, which I, and I stand on the shoulders of both of them. Um, were it not for Arthur Whaley, I would never have gone into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I think Burton Watson plays an, an uh, equal role. In the importance that they had, combining impeccable scholarship with being able to write.
0: Yeah, that brings just one more thing I wanted you to, to comment on because be, before we started recording, you mentioned, of course, that you're you're an academic and uh, are a translator, but also a scholar, and your certain attitude that you have about what your role should be or is as a scholar, what you try to accomplish with that. You
1: said something um, about I the poets exactly, exactly, yeah. uh, and that's another reason, by the way, that I love these Chinese poets because, by and large, they are scholars as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, I mentioned to you uh, at one point when we were chatting that uh, there are actually several different streams in Chinese poetry. Um, and there is one that I am actually not that happy with. The, there's a certain line of Chinese poets who can become so scholarly that they are pedantic, where every single line is an illusion. And to their great credit, the traditional Chinese critics would all take them to task and say, this is too bookish. Uh, but when scholarship is balanced with artistry, it can it can, be an enhancement. And the use of allusions in Chinese poetry is all important, alluding to some mm-hmm. figure of the past or some event of the past that you, can, assume, you, the poet, can assume all your readers will know immediately, right? Yeah. Sometimes they, they will put little notes, in interlineated notes, something like T.S. Eliot in The Wasteland, the Chinese poets already doing that centuries ago when they feel that even the readers that I have today are not going to be able to get this. They do that and it's okay. It, it, it works out. But, but anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. And um, to answer your question, I think scholarship is a high calling and I believe its goal is to engage in a quest for the truth. What I believe its goal is not is to reinterpret the past in the interest of some agenda you have for the present and the future. In a nutshell, I think it is wrong to politicize scholarship. It ceases to be scholarship, in fact, at that point, and it becomes a type of political advocacy. And even if you happen to agree with the content of that advocacy, you should recognize this is no longer scholarship. Um, so that I, I want to. When I read a Chinese poetry, for example, I want as much as I can, and and I know going in that completion and one hundred percent success in this is impossible by definition. But as much as I can, I want to get into their heads, into their souls, and into their bodies. I want to see, hear smell and think about and experience the world as they did. And that to me also becomes part of the process of translation. I don't see translation as a merely linguistic procedure. It's (laughs) linguistic by its very nature, of course, but there are these other things have to come in. And and, and it, it, I see it as almost a mystical, spiritual kind of enterprise. And here's one interesting fact, that when often when I've done with um, an article or a book or something, and it comes out, it's months later, it may even be a year or, or more later, and I take it and flip through it and start reading, I don't even recognize what I'm reading. It might as well have been written by somebody else, and I I've tried to figure out why that might be, uh, and maybe because when I was doing it, I was in some kind of a zone, and I would think that the writing of original poetry might even be like this too, um, you know, it's that you're in a zone when you're doing yeah. it, and lay, and then you have you can't be in the zone twenty four seven. Every now and then, you know, yeah. you, have to, you have to come out of it to, just to live your normal human life. And so um, you may not be stepping into it at the same place and in the same way when you step back into it later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this is great. We really covered a lot of territory and I'm really delighted. Uh, I just want to say, folks, you're listening to Poetry Spoken here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, your host. And we've been visiting with Jonathan Chaves, talking about translation, and translation specifically of uh, mostly classical Chinese poetry. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. We've just concluded the second part of our extended interview with Jonathan Chaves on the fine art of translation. And now we're going to take a look at a marvelous poet I recently heard read, Morgan Parker. She is the author of There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyoncé from Tin House Books. And soon Tin House will be publishing her third collection of poems, Magical Negro. She had received an NEA Fellowship for Literature in 2017, a Pushcart Prize in 2016, and she is a Cave Canem Graduate Fellow. She also gets involved in active poetry scenes like Reparations Alive at the Ace Hotel in New York City. Now, I'm just going to give you a sampling of her poetry as I like to do when I find a poet I think you will enjoy and maybe you have not run into just yet. Morgan is currently living in Los Angeles. Here's a poem, Lush Life. The most beautiful hearse I have ever seen is parked in front of my stoop, perched, hands folded for six to eight weeks, twinkling like a siren, a new idea of love. Trees are planted but don't exist yet. They are leaning non-existent into us. A trough of hearts meets me in the anxious sun. I could rot here. Something like the Holy Spirit pours you over bruised ice. There isn't anything more to say than holy. Beautiful men never looking upon me. I take music self-stirred and sleep alone. Curve. Into the morning, like an almond, my shoulders lush as romantics. You wash up on a bar stool, smooth heartache, black sand. I'm telling you, in our workshop, she talked about the use of popular images in poetry, and we had an extended discussion of uh, a poem in which the uh, speaker was in a parking lot of a T.J. Maxx waiting for a friend to come out from having had an abortion and the discussion went around what's the point what does it mean when you mention something like tj max what other brand could it be what other company what other uh, you know store would would be in that slot tj max and what would it mean how would it change the meaning of what's going on in the poem. Quite interesting, and clearly Morgan has given it a lot of thought. I'm going to read a little excerpt from another poem, and then you're on your own to look up uh, Morgan Parker online. Maybe you'll want one of her books. They're, They're awfully good. This is The Rebirth of Slick. It was published in Glitter Mob. And sashayed and solar, I'm a moodless seedling on the day Jay-Z was born and Fred Hampton was killed. Watching TV and thinking white people are crazy. Watching YouTube and thinking Kanye West is crazy. Looking in the mirror. And she goes on about who's crazy and who's not. And it concludes, I was born this way, unsatisfied my color is a bridge with no other side in a second life my voice is a drum kit i love that raining over green hills like weather i am king and anthem i know how to relax it's very hard to characterize poems poets in just a couple of poems so um let's i'm just saying i did my best here but if you see the list of uh, poetry titles on her website You'll be very interested, I believe, to learn more about her. That's Morgan Parker. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter inviting you to join us again next time to Let Poetry Speak to You. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter-Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, PoetrySpokenHere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, PoetrySpokenHere at gmail.com.